Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 106. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobart Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Mysteries. Crime. And thrillers. Uh, again, you know, when I get to four, I always forget. I know. I love how you sort of... <laughs> There's a moment's a... pause and I think, come on, you know it. <laughs> I have brain fade. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an increasingly gloomy Sunday afternoon coming into evening as we record this uh, episode. And our guest this week is anything but gloomy. Oh, not at all gloomy. No. Troy Lambert from the organisation Plotter, which is a brilliant piece of new software uh, and a service for authors. So if you're an author or an editor or in publishing in any way, this could be a useful interview. And Plotter, well, we've, I've had a little bit of a play with it, and it offers all sorts of functionality. Now, many people are familiar with Scrivener, which is the sort of granddaddy of author-focused uh, writing tools. Uh, this one is to help you plot your novels. So would this be a, a grandson or a cousin? I would say... That it's the hmm yeah I think it's 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 vaguely related and they they have an interaction with with Scrivener they have functionality that interact but I think it's a it's a it's probably the genesis of of uh, you know and the thought and brainchild of people who write books who weren't happy with the way that Scrivener works from a plotting point of view in terms of its simplicity and its visual appeal and that's why they've they've come up with their own version. And, um, and I think it, you know, as we'll discuss, is a, another useful piece of the toolkit for the modern author. But do you know what I love about Plotter? Mm. It's the fact that the people who have created it, or at least Troy, who's involved in, with it, mm. he actually uses it. They didn't just create it. Oh, no, no. It's a mean, business. They, they, they no, use they, it. They, they do. And they have a strong community of people constantly feeding back to them. And they're making changes that people want. So that is to their massively to their credit, and I think that actually, judging by the speed at which they make these changes, then clearly they're using some some you know they're using some systems that are very very clever that they can actually make those changes reasonably quickly. Whereas Scrivener, certainly if you're a Windows user, has been very slow in you know changing. Um, Scrivener three is available on Mac; it's not on on PC. I'm not trying to knock it. I mean, a lot of people rely on it. I personally didn't get on with it particularly um i felt like i needed to take a degree to sort of kind of make it all work but with plotter i found it a lot easier yeah and that's part of the reason they created it wasn't it because he said you can be overwhelmed with too much functionality and too much information and too many things to look at yeah but, but I'm, I'm not the sort of 
technical boffin who can read a manual and figure out how things work. Uh, I need it to be a lot easier than that. I need, need it to be intuitive, and uh, I would say plus Riz. Anyway, Troy Lambert is going to be talking about that and also his own career and some brilliant wisdom from a writing point of view as he's a, a writing educator as well. And, uh, you know, I think he, he – there were some the moments where we went, oh, yeah, that's really clever, you know, when he was um, <laughs> running through a few things that, about mysteries particularly. Okay, let's get into some news. And uh, we had a successful launch this week of Cut and Shut by Jonathan Peace, uh, which was great. And we've got another book coming out next week. So We do. Fatal so, Dose by Brian Price. We do, yeah. It's actually a very busy January for us and early February, um, which is great. So busy for us here at Hobeck. And we'll talk more about – what we've been up to uh, over the week uh, a little later in the program. But um, in sort of wider industry news, is, this is our usual section where we mm-hmm. talk about that. What have you spotted? Um, a couple of things. So uh, one, um, we're always going on about the big five. And anyone in publishing, you always talk about the big five, you know, the big five. <laughs> we're talking about publishing companies here, <laughs> if you're talking about the big five. I forgot people might not necessarily know. So HarperCollins... Penguin Random House. Um, Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster. It's a bit like the thrillers, mystery, suspense bit, isn't it? Um, my mind's gone more, blank. And it's, like, it's like the Generation game. Um, Hachette. Ha- ha- Hachette, are they the big five? I guess so. And there's one more. There is one more. Simon & Schuster. No, you said no, I've them. No, I've done them. Okay, well, you get the picture. Anyway. Pan Macmillan. Pan Macmillan, of course. So there's an article this week about the fact that um, actually the big – well, they, they say the big four, so I think that's – I don't know why why not five, but their market share has actually contracted slightly, and it's because of the sort of what they call the, the, the mid-range publishers, so the publishers below the big five or the bigger publishers. Yeah, they actually use the phrase, so the Champions League publishers and then there's the Europa League ones. Yes. Um which, okay, fair enough. Uh, and what sort of names are we talking about when we're talking about Europa League level publishers? Okay, so uh, most people have probably heard of some of these publishers at least. Osborne. If you've oh, got yeah, a child, you've definitely yeah, heard of yeah, Osborne. Definitely. Faber. Yeah. Uh, Quarto. Quarto. Quattro. Quarto. Like that drink. Quarto, um, yeah. <laughs> from the 80s. Walker and Profile um as sort of the names that are given Bonnier, as Bonnier, of course. yeah yeah very much so um so this i think this is a good thing because i think any industry with a sort of oligopoly is not a good thing mm. which is what the big publishers have at the moment so although we're nowhere near the league of these sort of mid-range publishers we're, we're in the stafford rangers level aren't we <laughs> if that yeah <laughs> Um, but it's 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 anything that increases competition and increases um, sort of dyn, dyn, dynamism of um, an industry. What's the? Is there any sort of analysis or or um, thinking behind how this has happened? Is it because? Well, we keep hearing that the big publishers, the biggest publishers, the Champions League, are getting quite conservative in what they're commissioning. So, is the market? reflecting you know the 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 more dynamic and um adventurous titles that these other publishers can bring to market i absolutely think that is a big part of it um in fact i've just been reading a book about um newsletters and about how to um, be better in your business if you're a small business and one of the things that this book is saying that imagine you're an enormous tank and you see a cliff 
and you decide you have to stop. How long you need in order to put your brakes on and to get to a stop. Whereas if you're on a bicycle, <laughs> you just stop. And it, the, the point is that um, you can change very quickly when you're not an enormous, great big organisation. So the, mm. the medium organisations, you know, obviously able to change. Are nimbler. Nimbler, exactly. They're more nimble. Yeah. And than... then you've got micro organisations like the two of us and Hobet Books where uh, we can, well, we can stop and we can start and, you know, but actually, <laughs> actually it's about becoming big enough to have, um, you know, that quandary, I suppose. Have that quandary and have the marketing budgets to yeah. change. Yeah. And Absolutely. Yeah. So. Uh, it, uh, okay. Well, look, I mean, it's good to hear that, you know, that uh, they aren't being dominated. But I think at the same time, it's it's worth remembering that a lot of these uh, imprints get bought out by the big four. Yes. The big five. They do. And, of course, uh, Penguin Random House's takeover of Simon Schuster in the United States is, is dead in the water now. But still, I mean, most of the reports are saying someone else will come in and buy it and consolidate their position at the top of publishing. So it, it this goes on. Um, at the moment, they're sort of feasting on each other, if you like. But uh, and I'm sure that the business model for some of these publishers is to build themselves to the point where they want to get bought out because that's the exit strategy. Oh, yeah, I don't doubt that at all. Um, so yeah, Interesting. Um, well, look, another, you know, slightly more, uh, I suppose, depressing thing to mention it is the uh, closure of some an aspect of Penguin Random House, uh, which is being proposed, which is they have a third-party uh, th distribution service which operates from Grantham in the uh, East Midlands. And they are considering closing that site in 2025. And the reason for this, according to Penguin Random House CEO Tom Weldon, has told staff that the cost of running the operation at Grantham has risen su substantially due to macro-external factors, including supply chain challenges and economic shifts. And it was no longer commercially viable. Although no final decisions have been made, around 200 people are at risk of redundancy if the plans go ahead. And many trade figures noted the impact of Brexit and rising energy prices on the current book landscape, as well as the small margins of the distribution business. Mm. Christopher Hamilton Emery, director of Salt Publishing, told the bookseller, Penguin Random House is a tremendous supporter of independent publishers. Who knew? This announcement is a further reflection of the economic impact Brexit is having on us all. Yeah, too true. Uh, we must hope that a new government with fresh ideas on European trade could offer the country an achievable and honest way out of this mess, reducing operating costs and so much needless bureaucracy. Yeah, we've been there. All barriers to growth. But right now, my heart goes out to the tremendous team at GBS, Grantham Book Services. Mm, and One tough. World publisher, Juliet Maybe, said... The news came as a shock. The firm has been with Grantham Book Services for many years. Moving distributors is not something any publisher wants to undertake lightly, as it involves an incredible amount of work. Well, there you go. Um, this is, this is, yeah, further evidence to everything that we've been saying for several months now. Um, it is getting tough. Now, our experience of exporting into the EU has been really tough, and it was a big order for the Maltese market, and it took forever 
to fulfil all the paperwork. Didn't yeah, it? it did, and I think to be fair, that was partly because it was the first time we've ever done it. Yeah. Um, but and we were on holiday at the same time, which kind of made it feel more troublesome. But mm. yes, there were lots of numbers we had to have attached to the company, or forms we had to fill out, and details that I didn't expect to have to find, and. You know, I had to ask the accountant to help me because I didn't know how to do it. It was all a bit complicated. Yeah, I, I think I think regardless of the fact that there were certain first hoops to go through that we'd never done before and we had to get certain information and registration sorted out, beyond that, it was still massively time-consuming for, you know, a relatively small return, potentially. Yeah. And I think that you can see, you know, that's going out into the EU, but coming back from the EU, the cost of everything has gone up as well because of this, and it's not worth doing half the time. And, you know, you hear about other industries like uh, cheese export businesses that have just given up. They've just given up, yeah, you're right. Because they can't get, you know, they can't get a margin. It's been a, well, I think it's shambolic, really. And I know there'll be a lot of people here listening to this podcast who were pro-Brexit and supported it and thought it was going to bring certain benefits. But can they honestly say that it has? (laughs) <laughs> because at the moment, economically, it's clearly a great drag chain on the economy. And we can say from our perspective as, you know, putative exporters of books, it does not work for us. You've got to have really a product which has such a big margin that it can absorb some of the, you know, the considerable costs that this is increasing. Um, and, you know, that's quite apart from the fact that raw materials for making paperback books which we do, are hugely expensive. Now, I gave an example on Twitter this week, which got quite a good, quite a big response. I don't know if it was necessarily a good response, but anyway, it, made, it pricked people's interest. And uh, the fact is that we were quoted this week for a reprint yes. of one of our books. I can give you the numbers if you like. Have you got the numbers? I've got them in my head. You've got them in your head, right? Okay, yes. Fair enough. So this was a book we, we published uh, 15 months ago. And when we published it, we printed 200 copies. And the cost of that was £625. And 37 pence. Oh, okay. And 37 pence. Very important, 37 pence. Now, we're reprinting that book at the moment. So I asked for a quote this week. And it has gone up to an astronomical, well, I think astronomical, £846. And 16 pence. And 16 pence. (laughs) So we are talking about... £221, basically, extra. In 15 months. 25% plus Mm. increase in 15 months for the same books, same specification, for the same supplier and same cover price at 9 99 Now, look, it's just not sustainable from our perspective, 9 99 because those copies are costing £4.25 a copy now. And this is, and we're going through a. You've used this process before for books that we knew that we could shift to three hundred copies. Yeah. Um, and you know it was still a considerable sum of money for us to commit. And the thing about publishing paperback books is that you have to wait a long time for the money to come back. It trickles back in. It you know you don't guarantee. You know, you're tying your money up for months, and that's if they all sell. And not only that is. They've got to be stored. Yeah. And so we are paying for that privilege. We're paying for them to be stored. And distributed. We get a bill every month from yeah. the pup, the printers that we use, Clay's in mm-hmm. Suffolk. Mm-hmm. And it is not inconsiderable. No, it isn't. So put all that in. Then you've got to give your rate retailer 
a discount of at least 45% to feature it in their bookshops. They would much, certainly the big ones would expect to get 50 to 60% of the cover price. So already, on you know, let's just do that mass. I mean, you know, £4.20, say, a copy on a £9.99 cover price, and then you give away 50 to 60% of your cover price, you're making a loss on every copy as it stands. So it is a massive problem. And the thing is that in the UK, and I had Americans contacting me saying, gosh, your paperback prices are very low. Yes, I saw um, that, yeah. You know, that, you know $12 um, on current exchange rates, which, you know, is, is ludicrously low because we would expect to pay 16 to $20 for the same book. And there's a fair point here because Britain is anomalous compared to the rest of the world. It has much lower cover prices for its popular fiction paperbacks because – of two factors. The net book agreement, which ended, I think, in the 90s, uh, ripped up the, basically, you set the price and that's the price across every marketplace. And that allowed people like Waterstones and Dillons at the time, who were the ones who smashed it. Um, and then, of course, the supermarkets to have, you know, cheaper pro- produced copies, but selling them for a fiver each, if sometimes even less, or buy one, get one free, all that sort of thing. And this is the problem, is that consumers... You know, I, I, I understand there's a pinch, but the fact is that, you know, it's all rigged against the publishers and the authors to make any money at the moment. And uh, the other story we're going to look at, which has crept into the, the bookseller this week, is that the, there's a sudden drop-off in people buying hardbacks and going into bookshops now and buying two paperbacks because they no longer see hardbacks as um, good value for money. Yeah, that's true, except for the sort of special editions that yeah. um, publishers produce. But um, booksellers have noticed recently that people sort of anecdotally are saying, you know, oh, I'd love to get the new hardback by so-and-so, but I'm going to wait for the paperback or I'm going to mm-hmm. get these two instead or these two paperbacks instead. So, Yeah, and, and you know, again, it's a question of everybody adapting to customer choices. But the fact is that money is tight. Books are... Uh, an essential for certain people, but a luxury to many others. And this is something that we all have to bear in mind. But the bottom line is you can't put a cover price on a book that loses your money. And so, again, you know, at some point in the very near future, we're going to have to redress that balance. And, of course, it will be a risk because it will push our books above the £10 barrier, which many publishers think is a no-no in popular fiction. But it's a cold reality. You just simply, you know, when you're talking about 25% increase in production prices, you can't you can't not pass on something that big when the margins were so small in the first place. No, it makes no sense to make something that you end up paying people to buy. Yeah, exactly, which is what we're facing. <laughs> so, uh, well, I, mean, I hope this hasn't put you off the thought of writing a book. Uh, and if so, uh, if you are still <laughs> feeling the love for writing. And of course, that's what we're really here about. We're here to support authors and to uh, follow our passion for books. Then uh, we're always on the lookout for something that might make the process a touch easier. Plotter, P-L-O-T-T-R, is a new piece of software. It's relatively new anyway, um, which has been drawn up in the United States by authors um, together with coders. And basically it allows, it's a, it's a really great visual tool with lots and lots of um, facets that help you plot your next novel or indeed any written work because it's not just adaptable for uh, for, for fiction it's 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 tr- tremendous for, for non-fiction as well 
Uh, we've had a go at it. It's a, it's, you can get it, actually, uh, for free for two weeks, which is what we've done to play with it. We're not getting paid to advertise it, but we thought, um, as they reached out to us, that we would speak to them. And uh, we had a fantastic conversation with we, Troy. We did, and Troy lives a long way away. He does indeed. In America. So let's speak to Troy Lambert from Plotter. Well, we're making a connection across the pond. One of those rare occasions, which we love doing. I know. I get very excited talking to America. (laughs) We do. And we are delighted to be joined by Troy Lambert, who joins us from uh, Plotter, which is the main reason we're speaking to you. But you're also an author and an editor, so plenty to to go at uh, from a book context. But first of all, let's establish your credentials, uh, Troy. Um, How many books have you written now? Um, So I just finished book 31. Um, Well, okay. And I always preface this with those are publishable books. There were some that I wrote in college that will never see the light of day, but the last time (laughs) I saw them, they were on a three and a half inch uh, computer drive in WordPerfect 5 format. And I'm happy for them to stay that way. Um, So yes, that's ones that I could actually publish that were actually actually (laughs) decent books, but yes. That's amazing. Yeah, that's impressive. (laughs) And over how long a period is that then? 31 books? Um, So I've been doing, I've been writing full-time since 2009. So um, for some people, that means I'm slow. For other people, that means I'm really fast. Um, I've actually, over the last few years, I've gotten faster um, at at the writing process. Um, Hopefully that means I'm getting better at it too. Absolutely. uh, Well, how much of that speed is, is down to your connection now with Plotter? Uh, which is this, uh, well, I mean, there are a number of of different programs and and solutions out there which encourage writers to think logically about developing their work. Um, But how much has Plotter played a part in that? Um, It's actually played a huge role in that. And a part of that is that for me, I had a process before Plotter, but it was sloppy and kind of messy. It wasn't as organized as I probably needed it to be and probably didn't realize that I needed it to be more organized, Um, especially in the revision process. Uh, The drafting process for everyone is still, I I always tell people, you're 30 books in, I like, I just wrote a horrible first draft, right? Because that's what you write, horrible first drafts, and then you revise them. That's the, this is the game. It it happens over and over again. but in that particular case, like my first drafts have gotten better and my revision process is way faster. So it adds a huge level of efficiency to the writing process overall. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it, specifically, how does that work then? Because I've taken a look at Plotter and, and I can recognize certain synergies with other things that I've used in the past, like um, Scrivener, which obviously Plotter speaks to. Um, and it's a great visual tool for organizing, you know, where key things happen in your story and things like that. But in terms of the revision, I, I, I would, you know, I haven't quite got into the depth of it yet to see how that works. Well, so for me, what I do is, so I plan my books, um, like, you know, other people plan their books. Um, I do it kind of a kind of a medium organizational level is what I call there's people that are architects like James Patterson who writes a 20,000 word outline which to me means you wrote a draft of the book without descriptions but yeah that's skeleton (laughs) to 
to each their own, whatever the case may be, because a lot of discovery writers write what I call the zero draft. I don't even call it their first draft. It's an outline draft, right? Um, but so I plan my books ahead of time, but oddly enough, what I write doesn't always match up exactly with what I planned, right? My characters go off, they make a left turn and, you know, in some <laughs> traffic circle in London and they end up in the countryside somewhere. And I'm like, how did we get here? And what happened? Well, that happens in real and life. <laughs> how do we get back? The wheel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do we get back? Where are we going? Right. And, um, so in the revision process, what I'm essentially doing is I'm breaking apart that work that I've written into summaries of each scene, and then I'm checking my work. How did I do? I'm comparing that to what I planned, but also usually comparing it to some kind of an established plot structure. And I go, do, is my inciting incident in the right place? Do I have a midpoint? What's the major turning point of this book for my character? Do I have one? If I don't have one, Maybe I need to go back and include that in the revision process. So it helps me check and see, like, how was that first draft? How did I do? So for discovery writers, it helps you add some structure to this, you know, probably wildly willy-nilly, um, you know, first draft that you created. It allows you to add structure to it so that you can understand where did I go in with this story? And now that I've told myself the story, what part of this does the reader need to know? We all have those those chapters that we put in there that we just explained the story to ourselves and then we can go, ah, you know, I don't need to show that to the reader. The reader doesn't need to show that. You can eliminate those things by looking at summaries instead of just trying to reread through your work over and over. You By tearing it apart into summaries, scene summaries, you can look at it objectively, get that distance from your work that you need um, to actually make it good. and then when you rewrite that second draft, you're not just going over things, you're eliminating those things you shouldn't even spend time going over before you even start that draft. That's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. I, so it's I, kind of a time-saving thing, isn't it? Well, in many ways it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think that, you know, what you're saying is it's it's a great reference point to go back to kind of genesis of the of the structure and making sure that everything earns its place within your work. Right. Right, exactly. What you're doing is, is like I say, essentially, you're checking your homework. I Because I, I often tell people, being a writer for a living means you're giving yourself English homework every day for the rest of your life. Um, so if, so you, true. if you didn't enjoy English class, this is probably not you're in the, the wrong right, job. <laughs> this is probably not the job for you, right? Um, and basically, what I'm doing is going back and checking my homework. Like, how did I do? Did I do well? Did I hit the points I was supposed to hit with this plot? You know, how does the story structure actually work? And in, but in the process of doing that, it allows you to still allow your creativity to flow as you're going through that second draft, but doing it with structure because for creativity to turn into saleable or commercial creativity, it needs structure. Yes. You know, creativity needs structure. Yeah, and I think this is something that is, it's a constant battle, isn't it, for all authors to recognize that and then to really get comfortable with that structure. And and what I think is interesting, and I, I when I, I say I, I had a good delve into Plotter, and I, I can't say that I've sort of practically used it, but I had a good look. And you have, what, over 30 within the, the software now, 30 different structures that you can draw on. So it might be a classic, Joseph Campbell's, Hero's Journey being one. Uh, one I've used before is the um, uh, Romancing the Beat 
by Gwen Hayes. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I wasn't writing a romance, I was writing a mystery, but it, it was a romance in his mystery. Right. So there's there's a core relationship, mm. you know, will they, won't they dynamic between the two main characters, which her beats allowed me to to build. And actually you can work a lot of dramatic uh moments into that structure. You know, the the, the mm-hmm. revelation of key things that are gonna tear them apart for the period in the book where they need to be you know, have fallen out with each other, all of that stuff. It's all there. Um, but then I get, I don't know if, I, if I'm unique in this, but people get paralyzed by choice in a way. So mm-hmm. it's quite, it's quite mm-hmm. difficult to, um, to decide which, which path to go down. I guess you can not, you know, you can try different things, but w- what's your feeling around that structure? Do you use any of the ones that are provided or do you have your own? Um, so I, I sort of, so I do both. So I've actually also used Romancing the Beat, and I'm rewriting um, a part of that story structure, and I'm calling it Thrilling the Beat, because it actually does work really well for mysteries and thrillers, but people get hung up on the language that's in it, because Mm -hmm. it's designed for romance, right? So I'm like, let's just do a quick redesign, and I've done the same thing for the hero's journey. I call it the sleuth's journey. Um, It's one Mm -hmm. of the things, that it's one of the templates that's in Plotter. Yes, I saw, yes, Um, yeah. But... For some of my shorter mysteries, I use the 12-step mystery formula. It's it's really easy. It's really simple. Um, and it's simple to adapt your, your writing to that. But what I tell people is you kind of start with genre and then start simple and go complex. So mm-hmm. because people tend to get overwhelmed by that, like unless you're already a plotter by nature or an architect by nature, you look at the story engine's blueprint, for example, and there are 40 scene cards and four different plot lines and people just go, ah, you know, oh man, mm. it scares me to death, right? Don't get scared. It's okay. You don't have to have that intricate of a plot structure. You can know the beginning, middle and end of your book and maybe a couple points in between and you're fine. For me, like with mysteries, like I, all I really need to know is who did it, how they get caught, who catches them and who the other suspects might be. Now, usually I know more than that, but those are that's the premise that I start with with a mystery is those are the things I need to know to start writing mm. or in my case to start planning, right? But if even if you're a discovery writer and you're writing that zero draft and you're writing mysteries, all you need to know is those few things and you could work your way towards that, right? And you will end up with a first draft. Now, you will there, there will be editing and changing and all that stuff involved and and I always tell people you're always dropping clues. As a, when you get down to the end as a mystery writer, then you're like, oh, now I know where I could drop clues. And you go back and drop them in your draft. And the reader goes, wow, how did you know to drop that in chapter two at the beginning? <laughs> and I'm like, I had no clue, my friend. I went back and did it later. Um, <laughs> it's and, magic. <laughs> you know, giving, away, giving away all the writer's secrets, right? But um, but all of that being said is that this planning process doesn't have to be extremely complex to start with. So start with something simple and you can try different templates and stack them up next to your story and see what resonates, see what really works with your, first of all, with you as a person, as a writer and who you are and with your story. And then you can play around with those things and you'll find something that fits because what you'll find the more that you study story structure is the more things that story structure have in common rather than what's different about yes them. yeah and there's as you rightly point out 
with all of those structures, there's different terminology and different emphasis on different things. But essentially, yes, there is this commonality which comes through. And I, I, I found it interesting that you, you've adapted certain of those those things to to suit the genre you're writing. So, romancing the beat, yes, um, there's a there's an element in that called the meat cute, which is mm-hmm. very much a romance thing. But what that actually means is the first time. Ideally, your two characters, man, woman, whatever, doesn't matter. Uh, it could be anybody. Cat, dog. Yeah, meeting together for the first time and their first impressions, usually pretty negative mm. <laughs> in, in this one. And then that sort of thing. And you can use that in a mystery very, very nicely. You know, detective meets suspect or mm-hmm. uh, d- older detective gets new... Oh, gets new gets person new, to work gets with. Gets new yeah, partner. Gets, gets young... Yeah, college educated versus street smarts that kind of thing yeah i mean you could art you could argue with british tv that really like touch of frost was a romance yeah totally i mean it was a bromance right kind (laughs) of you know i mean now it wasn't the lovey type of romance but there's two detectives working together one of them is brash and goes off and does his own thing which is kind of a typical type of detective thing and then you have the guy behind him who's grounding him and saying hey no come back and uh, be reasonable and those type of things and you look at a lot of different detective things where there's a partner dynamic and it's it's a romance without the romance elements to it so you can certainly write that using romancing the beat you just have to change your mental terminology and what you're thinking of how things go but that meet cute still happens those Mm. partners meet they start to work together and they figure out their relationship along the way using the case as a backdrop for that it's it's interesting you just the the mind's eye image i've got coming through is starsky and hutch the (laughs) 70s version versus the ben stiller owen wilson film where they actually played up the bromance element for comedy for comedy purposes for comedy purposes yep and exactly, yeah. you're exactly right. It's a, it, because if you look at those different things, like obviously we weren't doing that in the 70s. That was, you know, that would have yeah, been, yeah. <laughs> been a, a not good television in the 70s. But if you look at the modern adaptation, you're absolutely right. They play up that for comedy, which is another aspect that you can introduce is like playing up these different aspects of your plot for the sole purpose of intriguing people or making them laugh or adding another element to your story. Um, there's nothing wrong with having a subplot romance in your mystery and thriller, especially when we talk about, you know, on a commercial side, 70% of genre readers in general are women. Yes. So they want that little bit of romance in their they book. Do. They don't mind that. They <laughs> like it. So if you don't have that in their book, your books, there or at least some of that tension that there's a potential romance or whatever, you're, you're, there's a certain amount of your audience that you may be missing out on. So. Totally. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I like it when our books have a bit of a romantic. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, it has an, that gives it an um, emotional underscore that you need sometimes, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's the front and center element that that you know the the weakness of your central character is provided by the. Well, it's like Mulder and Scully. You know, we we mm-hmm. watched that uh, the X Files all the way through, hoping they'd get together at mm-hmm. some point. <laughs> oh yeah, of course, and and sometimes that you know, like I say that's a it's a bromance or it's a family relationship, right? It's a father-daughter relationship, and they're trying to heal that relationship, or whatever the case may be. I mean, even if you look at, you know, Die Hard, Bruce Willis type thing, right? The the first one, the first one in the series was about him trying to win his wife's 
his wife back to his viewpoint of the world. And in the end, it actually kind of works. If you think about it, there's a little happily ever after ending at the end of that movie um, where the two of them get together. Now, I mean, it's not a romance. That's not the type of film that it is, but there's definitely a subplot romance going on throughout it. Absolutely. So. No, no, that's true. Even Terminator 2. Yeah. <laughs> true. That's, that's true. A, a, boy, a boy looking for a father figure. It's about women who yeah. love the Terminator films. Because, yeah. because there is that element of the relationships, the romance. Or well, not I, even... I, you know, we totally digress there. But I mean, one of the problems mm. we've got perhaps doing this in a podcast form, talking about a very visual piece of software, which um, and, 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 and development and, and the, uh, to try and explain to people what they will get when they take a look at Plotter, because you can try it for, for two weeks uh, free of charge. And then there's a, a, you know, various different pricing schemes. Um, but essentially what caught my eye was the timeline um, element. Mm -hmm. So that if you take one of these structures, it will pre-populate a timeline for different plot strands and different beats, which you know is a very popular way of describing it, particularly in Hollywood, uh, since romancing, um, since um, saving the cat came out. Um, getting your plot beats laid out for you, and then you populate it with your information. Um, but trying to describe how that might look like, um, if people are familiar with Scrivener, there's the corkboard and the little virtual. Uh, post-it notes post-it notes and cards <laughs> that you put up there but this is actually a lot cleaner i think yeah it's i i kind of describe it as like note cards on steroids a bit so like when i started out like i used a court an actual court board um with you know note cards and string or i would use a whiteboard and draw arrows with different colors that meant different things um which is just to let people know that's a horrible way to do things and it was horribly disorganized but it was you know it was using the tools we had at the time it was better than um, nothing it was better than zero better than nothing but what what's interesting to me about that is that that was also a visual medium like i was trying to somehow visually represent my outline and plot to myself so i could see it and understand it that way um the the obviously the difference of doing it with software is it's much easier to move things around it's much easier to change the relationship of one thing to another and establish those relationships and break those relationships. Um, so it, it is much cleaner than I tried plotting in Scrivener a long time ago, long before Plotter existed. And it, it yes. didn't work exceptionally well for me because I couldn't get with Plotter. I can much more get an overall visual of a much larger portion of things at once with Scribner, I, there was a lot of movement involved in me seeing everything. So it wasn't as clean, as easy for me to get that overall picture and yet dive into individual pieces when I wanted to. That's probably the one of the most beautiful things about Plotter is just the simplicity and the fact that you can move things and change things visually in a really simple way to make it so it resonates with you. So it's just like these plot structures, like you can move those things around, right? To, to fit and suit your story to a certain extent. I mean, there's, there's certain things within a plot structure that we expect to happen at certain times. But I also tell authors, don't use math. Don't be like, well, the exciting incident is supposed to happen at 12%. So I've got a 72,000 <laughs> word novel. 
and they you get out your calculator. Like some people. You know, for there are people that do that, and they're like, "Well, by word five thousand six hundred and thirty-seven, <laughs> I've got to have no, please, for the love of all. If you're in a range, you're good. Um, this is creativity. This is writing, right? But you can see those things visually. You can kind of move them around and be like, "Okay, well, if my inciting incident doesn't happen until chapter seven, that could potentially be a problem." Right. Mm. So maybe it can happen in chapter three or chapter four. But if it's way over there in seven, well, maybe that's an issue. Or, you know, I have no my midpoint. Um, like to see that in Scribner is really difficult with that corkboard. But with Plotter, yeah. you can just you can you can have all your scene cards and plot it out and all your beats plotted out. And then you hit that little button in the center called middle. Right. So there's a there's three buttons, beginning, middle and end that go to the beginning of your story in the middle and the end. I know complicated, but you hit the middle button. And if you're in if your midpoint is not somewhere relatively close to either side of that middle. Well, then your midpoint's probably in the wrong place. Like it, it's a fairly simple way to just get that overview of that structure and go, how am I doing? Like I was saying, you're kind of checking your work. Like, how am I doing with this planning process? If my midpoint's way off, then how do I bring that back to where it needs to be? What am I missing? Am I missing a try-fail? Is there something in my plot that I just haven't done that I need to do to make this work the way it's supposed to? So mm. it, it it's a tool it, it, it's just a very clean visual tool that's designed above all to get you writing, to get you from the planning process to the writing process. Along with, I mean, the other part aspect of it is the series Bible features, which is just a matter of efficiency. Like I'm not going back to chapter two to read what color Susie's eyes were. Now I have it right in front of me. I know mm. what color her eyes were because I've got it already in the character sheet and I don't have to go back and look for things. Um, mm. So that part of it is, is, and also that that there's a potential for visuals there too, putting pictures of your characters in there, all that kind of stuff, um, pictures of your settings, different things like that, maps, whatever it is that you want to do. I've seen people do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, they're <laughs> super fascinating. So, you know, super interesting. Do you yeah. know what? That sounds, I'd love to look into other people's plotters. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, yeah, it, on our YouTube channel, you can actually, what I've done is I've interviewed a lot of writers. You can look at their process and how they're using Plotter. Um, and I tell people the key to that process, though, is you look at their process and the most important words they ever say in that interview is, and then. They say, I took this plot structure and then. What they say after those words is how they personalized that process and made it work for them. And that's the important part. People are like, can I imitate? I'll tell them my writing process. This is how I do it. This is how I use plotter and planning and then the revision. And then, you know, and in the writing process, then revision. They're like, can I imitate that process? Sure. Because you're never going to imitate that process. You're going to imitate parts of that process. You're going to take it and adapt it and make it your own. And I don't care what you do with it, to be honest with you. It doesn't matter to me. As long as this continues to work for me, I'll continue to use it, right? That's mm -hmm. because it's my process. You have your own process. Right. So you, that a part of that is developing your own process is going really what do these plot structures resonate with my writing and my story and my style and who I am as a writer. And then you go, OK, and then I take it and I use plotter to do this as part of my writing process. Beautiful, because it's a part of your writing process. It's not the end of the writing process. Mm. Creating, a, as I tell people, creating a beautiful plot file makes me very happy. Show me your plot files. Wonderful. <laughs> 
Want to make me happier? Show me the first draft that you finished with your plot file. Way happier guy. Because not only do I see that you can beautifully plot a story, but you can also finish one. And that's the important thing. Well, that's true. That's true. And one one question that both of us had really this morning when we started looking at it was, um, are you, I mean, with Plotter, you're creating a plot and, you know, you're getting your beats and all that sort of thing. But are you actually writing those scenes within the software or are you doing that no. elsewhere i'm so you can export your plotter your plot to either word or scrivener either way and you can actually import from scrivener importing from word is one of those things that makes the developers twitch when i talk about them, <laughs> to them about making that happen they get what i call resting programmer face the one that tells me yeah that's not going to happen um, yeah but anyway so you know, I write words, not code. So I just tell them, hey, I want this to happen. They go, that's really hard. And I go, that's nice. I'm going to go over here and write. You get to work. Anyway, yes. um, so <laughs> I'm like, I know it's hard. Oh. But anyway, um, so you theoretically, you could write in Plotter. There's no word limit in those scene cards. You have all the rich text features. I think it would be awkward. And at some point, you would have to export it to some kind of a format to edit it. You'd have to export it to Word or Scrivener. Um, so what I do is I export to Scrivener, um, and this goes into my writing process. And essentially, I have Plotter open on one window, on one monitor on my computer, and then my writing op in, open in Scrivener on another. Um, yeah. The reason is I can look at those character details by just turning my head. I don't even have to scroll down in Scrivener or anything. I can basically just turn my head look at those character details and go right back to the writing process. Mm, so it's, it's an efficiency for me. It's an efficiency thing. I didn't mm. always use plotter during the writing process. I would export all that to Scrivener and I'd scroll down and look at the character. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is just madness. And I would be like, and then one day I was just like, I left my plotter file open on the other monitor accidentally and went, okay, this kind of makes sense. And just started <laughs> looking back and forth. So it, it was an accidental discovery for me, but it was one that changed my writing process because then I went, okay, so now I don't even export my characters and notes and stuff to Scrivener. All I export is my main timeline that I want to work on, that I want to be in Scrivener for my scenes. Um, and each of the scene cards I create is essentially a writing prompt. It's a title of the scene card and then inside is a short description. And that short description is my writing prompt for that day. And then when I go through the revision process, that summary might get a little more robust and a little bigger, right? But yes. at the initial writing part, all it is is something that sparks my muse to say, let's do this. And I only I only write fiction in Scrivener. I don't write anything else in Scrivener. And the reason is just psychological. When I open Scrivener, my brain says, oh, it's time to write fiction. And my muse is like, let me grab some coffee. I'll be right there. And it <laughs> it eliminates some of that awkward like sitting down and going, okay, what am I doing? Where am I at with this? What 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 is this process? Instead of that, it just I sit down and automatically my brain goes, oh, plotters over there, scrivener's over here. We must be fiction writing, and <laughs> you get into that that flow a lot faster. Yeah, so. oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I think that I'd like that. I mean, I think one one well, absolutely, but I think one of the great advantages, um, you know, and and we ought to stress to people that we're just having a conversation here but there's no commercial uh connection here so <laughs> it just i am honestly reflecting on on my impressions of what i've seen is the fact that one of the frustrations with with scrivener is that you know essentially 
you're kind of limited to where you can work. But with you know the the, the highest level of uh, plotter, you can be on the on the train with your phone contributing to mm-hmm. your plot and and working on the same thing that will then reflect back on your laptop or, or desktop back at home or wherever it might be so i think that's that that's very good because i we know we've talked to a lot of writers who do write on the train or work on mm. the train or I you know to, you, go to festivals mm-hmm. and all sorts well i've written them. most of my drafts to go into google docs for that very you know fact that i can get in to the same file that i've got you know when i'm at home um which i couldn't do with with other systems so this is this is uh, you know quite a major piece of functionality and 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 uh, one mm-hmm. of the things that I think uh, uh, appeals to me most. Well, yes, I mean the Plotter Pro level essentially there's two advantages to it. First of all, that you can access it anywhere, and you're accessing the same document. But the other thing is similar to Google Doc, you can share it with someone else. So I tell people my editing clients now, if they don't have Plotter Pro when we start, they have it by the time we're done with the first draft process. And the reason is I tear their draft apart. I put it on a plot line if they don't already have one. And then I say, look, plot hole. And they can't deny it because it's visual. <laughs> it's right there. Like they can't say, oh, no, what I meant to do there was this and this happened and this happened. It doesn't matter what you meant to do. What matters is what's right there. Let's take care of that before we start editing the second draft because then it saves us time. So I'm like, whatever you spend on Plotter Pro is going to say it's going to save you more time than what I'm going to charge you for that time to go through this process without it. With it instead, we can work on the same file at the same time. You can see the changes that I'm making. And so I can not only say, this is a plot hole right here in scene six, but I can also say, and this is the way that you could fix that and put another scene card there that's got a suggestion in it. And they can see me typing that. And immediately light bulbs go on because it's visual. Their light bulb goes on that they're like, oh, yeah, I could do that. I do need to change that. And even if they don't use the exact idea that I give them, it gives them the thought that I need to look at that. And this is a way that I could potentially fix that. And it's extremely valuable. Also, if you're working with co-writers, like I'm co-authoring a series that I'm starting this year um, with another author that's a blend of romantic comedy and um mystery and thriller um so it's about serial killers who fall in love um and it's going to be super fun and actually your earlier comment the first book in the series is titled meet cute m-e-a-t double cannibals you know meet fall in love that creates problems you know meet at the costco and anyway um so (laughs) so but we can work on the same file at the same time so she can add her books and we don't have to worry about being in each other's files on the cloud and somehow creating versioning issues um, because we both have Plotter Pro. So we just go back and forth within that same document. Yeah, that's, so, that's super that valuable. very useful. I mean, it, it, it opens the question for us as a publisher uh, with our 23 author um, team, whether we go down this route in terms of, you know, the relationship between themselves and their editors, but also with us at at a headline level, because quite a lot of the conversations that we have um, with our authors, and we have one this afternoon. Yeah, I was going to say, this is very pertinent because we were talking about... Yeah, was, you know, about how, you know, she's just started to to redraft the beginning of a book and trying to get some structure on it and feeling her way through. And this is actually something that could give us that opportunity to really get in there on the detail side rather than the mm. the general sort of overarch 
kind of thing that, that mm-hmm. you know, quite vague conversations that you can have um, as, as a publisher with your author at that early stage. But actually, you could you could make it much more concrete and be much more involved. Well, yes. And as a publisher, too, there's another way that you can use this. So you can first of all, you can take those those conversations and make them not only shorter, but more fruitful because you're actually giving the author like an action point. Because I don't believe in writer's block most of the time. And this is why. If you give that writer a writing prompt, you put them in the right place, in the right environment, with the right tools, and you give them a writing prompt, they're going to write something. Now, the exceptions to writer's block are mental and physical illness, you know, full stop. Those things happen. You know, you have to stop your life and deal with those things. And sometimes that means stopping your writing. But for the most part, if you have a writing prompt, you have something to write about. You're in the right place with the right environment at the right time. I take you to a writing workshop or writer's conference, give you a writing prompt, you write it. So if you can trigger that writer with a writing prompt, they will want to end the call with you so they can go fix that because now they've got an idea and they've got something to write. Right. So and for you guys, that's like great because now they're being productive we're being productive but the other useful thing that you can do with plotter files is give them to your audio narrators if you're creating audiobooks because it gives them an overall view of the book a summary of each scene that they're going to be creating and your audiobook narrator now has a much better idea of the story and how it goes so that can affect their emotion um, as they're narrating things it can improve their their whole experience and it helps them as a narrator be more organized. Um, so is, as a publisher, that's yeah. a great, it's a great tool to just hand them. And but, even if they only have the desktop version, right? Like you have the pro version, they have the desktop version. You don't have to make changes with your audio narrator, but at least they have that visual representation of the book, the summary of each scene, and it gives them hints into the emotion and the things they need to bring that day to read that particular portion of the book. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, it, <laughs> As a narrator who's been in this studio today. And then you've um, had to change accents, haven't you? You've had to change accents because you get to the end of the book and you think, oh. Well, yeah, but that, 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 is, that is a very good point. Is that, that's, you know, that an author can suddenly drop in that they, uh, so-and-so has a baritone voice and you've given them a, a nasal twang, <laughs> you know, because that was the way that they came to you. I mean, you know, it, one of the things, the frustrations for as a narrator is that actually uh, you know the good ones, and I, I, I sometimes I'm a good boy, and sometimes I'm not. I'll go straight in and start narrating. Um, is that you should read the book ahead of time and make notes, mm-hmm. but you're not getting paid for that. That's what yeah. really that that that's what pees me off because you know as a slow reader, uh, left eye dominant yeah. reader, one word at a time, uh, that could be a week's work without getting any outcome or product for it because per finished hour, I'm not earning. I'm not on the clock yeah. yet. Yeah. So that is a really useful thing. But I have had that thing of hitting somebody with an accent or there being a character detail that's late in the book that changes the whole bloody thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's very useful. But that's the other thing is if you can get writers, obviously, your authors to send people notes ahead of time, like you would have those character profiles in the plotter as well. Yeah. And hopefully that would stay what their voice was like, like, especially if you're sending it to an audio narrator, I would think that that'd be one of the things you'd want. You'd say, mm-hmm. Hey, what is, how do you as the author envision this voice, but they can put that in a plotter file. You ship that to the audio narrator. And again, like you say, without you spending a week reading the book ahead of time, 
you can go, oh, baritone, American accent, whatever information you need to know, and it's all right there in front of you. And it makes you as a narrator more efficient. The truth is like the way plotter works, you can kind of also use it like a Kanban board and plan projects in there. You can do whatever you want with this type of software, whatever works for you to make your process more efficient. And for me, I'm like, look, let's, the elephant in the room of today's publishing world is you need to write fast. Publishing has always been about what have you done for me lately? But it used to be what have you done for me lately was what was the book you sent to your agent in the last year or last mm -hmm. two years? Now it's the last six months. Yes. If that, yes, or the last quarter, yes. right? <laughs> so we don't have that time anymore. And the, but the, also the truth of that is we have the tools as writers to be more efficient and to be faster. And if you are a writer like me, like I have enough ideas to write for the rest of my life. People are like, aren't you afraid that someone will steal one of my ideas? And I'm like, no, I'm giving them to people. I'm like, you want this idea? Here you go. You please write it. Then I don't have to. And I'll feel better about my life because I'm never going to finish all these ideas in my lifetime. Right. Mm. But if I can be more efficient, I can finish more of them in my lifetime. And that makes me happy. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, and this is part of the, like, the other part is that writing for a living is not fun all the time. Like there are easier ways to make money. Lots of them that are easier and make more money. Like this is not a profession you choose because you want to become rich and famous. We're not all going to be Stephen King, right? It's just not going to happen. Um, great thought. Probably not going to happen for me. You know, I'll be good middle of the road writer that, you know, has that mid-level career. And that's probably where I will stay. Now that might, you know, who knows something might happen, but I'm not, I, that's not how I pay the rent is with that. Right. Mm. So the writing part needs to be fun. The marketing part, the publishing part, the agent, the publisher part, that's not always the most fun, right? But the writing should be fun. So make it more efficient so it's more fun and smoother for you as an overall process. And your, your writer career becomes more sustainable. Otherwise, it's very easy to burn out in this industry. And we've seen people that have done it over and over is... Mm -hmm. They just, they, they go whole hog and they write six books and they write this great series and they go, you know, I'm looking at you, George R. R. Martin. And then you go, I'm not finishing book eight. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah. He's a regular <laughs> yeah. listener to our podcast. <laughs> oh, is he? All right. Well, hey, George, how you doing? You know, text me. I'll help you finish that book. Anyway, um, so we can erase the horrible season eight that HBO, anyway, never mind. I just. True. <laughs> It's a whole other podcast, but anyway, um, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying is like it, it, finishing your books, but also not burning out, like understanding, like, who am I as a writer? What do I want to do? What's my why? How do I want to accomplish this? And how can I keep going and do this for the rest of my life? Well, that's actually pretty hard. And people, you know, I've had friends of mine that achieved that dream of being a full-time writer. And then they went, I quit. I'm going to be a realtor. Because, you know, they're like, this was not what I expected when I started out on this writer journey. And I'm like, yeah, it's not what you expect because everything in this industry has changed. So totally. Yeah. So what it is now might not be the same what it is next year. Yeah. Oh, likely won't be. I mean, you know, we've got all kinds of things coming on the horizon, generative AI, all these different things that are like, no, they're not writing books for you yet. Yet. 
yeah, but there, it, the there, it is um, it is a way to generate ideas, generate prompts, and spark your process, right? So you can say, well, am I going to use that? Am I not going to use that? What that's going what's that going to look like? And how's that going to impact you in two years if you're not using it, and a whole bunch of other writers are? Like, how is that going to change this industry? We don't even know yet. We have no clue. This is so much in its infancy. We have no idea, right? Mm -hmm. So as as writers, we need to be aware of those things. And and just like when we went through the ebook revolution, everybody said, you know, bookstores are going to die and there's going to be yeah. no more print books. And hmm, that just hasn't happened. Um, you know, I, in fact, I see my son's generation and my son's generation likes physical books right just like they're going back to they like vinyl and they're yes. picking yeah. up cassette tapes and cds right the people reading on kindles are people that are my age you know why we're reading on kindles i could change the font size and i can't see <laughs> crap at night That's so if true. i'm trying to read a book right so i'm changing the font size. so people are using kindles and e-readers are people my age right and the reason is true. we can yeah. see easier young people they can read the fine print. They're reading the fine print on prescription bottle. I can't read that, right? <laughs> but they're reading that. They're reading all those different things, right? And so for them, it's not hard for them to read a paper book, and they like that feel and that smell and we, that I've physicality. Got... Yeah, yeah, my children are the same. The middle one has yeah. asked for a bookshelf for his birthday. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, huge, huge revolution that's happening in books going back to print that most of us that have been in this industry for a long time knew was going to happen, right? But mm -hmm. I don't think that these new things coming up are something that we're going to, oh, they're going to replace writers and we're all going to go broke and we're all going to die. No, probably not. It's probably not going to happen um, until AI becomes sentient and understands emotion. They're never going to be able to write the kind of books that people really, truly love to read. So um, that's my personal opinion. You know, again, a whole other podcast. But I think that in using the tools that we have to make ourselves as writers more efficient, make our process more fun. That's the whole point of this. That's the whole point of all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, computers, they've done the same yeah. thing before you wrote by hand in a notebook. True. True. <laughs> yeah. My grandfather gave me a Royal typewriter when I was eight years old. And that's what I wrote my very first book on. Brilliant. So. Yeah, yeah, I was not dissimilar. I was an Olivetti typewriter. Um, yeah. Let's um, let's look forward then to the future of PLOS because one of the things that I'd noticed um, as I was browsing was the uh, opportunity for the community, people who are using it, to make suggestions to the developers, the team that you work with, to to improve the system. And indeed, looking through the historical number of updates, it, they're quite regular. Every sort of three, four months, something fresh is is, mm -hmm. is brought to the system so there's quite a lot of room for for improvement and and for development yeah and so the things that are coming is first of all we have an import from scrivener now which is extremely useful um but right now it's limited by format by the format that you create things in scrivener so that's how plotter and so we're working to make that more robust so plotter can see better what you're doing in scrivener and import that in a in a more meaningful way so that's we're working on that's one of the things we're improving also the world building type aspects so we we only talked briefly about the series bible aspect of how you can record your you know your descriptions of your settings and your characters and stuff like that and there's actually a lot of power in the series bible as it is 
but for people who are like fantasy writers, like it's not all about characters and places. Sometimes it's about objects. Sometimes it's about their magic system. Sometimes it's about different things that they bring to the table. And we want to give them a place to put those things and to better make those relationships and connections. Um, along with just some, like some regular improvements, like um, people have wanted to be able to print their visually print their timeline. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And we don't really have a way to do that at this point. You would just export it to a Word document. So there's not a way to, to print that visual screen without taking a screen capture and printing it, which would be kind of weird. Um, but you could you could do that, but it'd be it'd be kind of strange. But um, so we're working on different features like that and different features like just improving like universal search and replace keyboard shortcuts, all those different things. So we're just working constantly to improve. And if you ever come across a feature that you're like, well, it'd be great if Plotter was able to fill in Make the blank. Make me a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's That'd a stretch. great idea. You can just it's see the IT guys going, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see Cameron's developer face right now just being like, no, we're not going to make it part of your smart home system. It's like... <laughs> Hey, plotter, turn on the lights. He's going to be like, no, no, it's just not. Sorry. Restart <laughs> my computer plotter. Anyway, no. Um, so, but I mean, you know, within anything, because really the truth is the way plotter started is writers creating a software for writers. The way it's developed all along is most of our developers are writers. Most of our staff are writers or want to be writers. And so we understand. So when you say it'd be great if a story structure thing could be this, we understand what you mean by that when you say that. Or it'd be great to be able to do this with a scene card. I'm like, ah, even if I don't do that myself, I can see the value of that. Mm. Um, so we have a public roadmap where basically you can vote for features that you're like, yeah, that's a great idea. But you can suggest your own. And I mean, that's pretty much unlimited. I mean, you could suggest that it becomes smart of our smart home and, you know, <laughs> turn on the lights. I'm not sure that that'd be one that would get a lot of upvotes and would work. But, you know, you could suggest it. You can suggest pretty much anything. But, you know... Our, our foundation has always been to empower writers to basically do what I was talking about, finish that first draft. And so what, if you need something to, that would help you do that, that we can put into Plotter and work into our system, we're all ears for that. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That's great. Well, uh, uh, Troy, you've, you've now got a hint as to how Rebecca's brain can work sometimes, make <laughs> those big leaps. So it is time, if you don't mind, to face Rebecca's random question. Who was your childhood TV hero who you wanted to be? Man, that is a, well, that's kind of a tough one. Not really. I mean, if I would, if I would pick one, because there were, there were a number of things that I watched, um, but probably the one would have been Captain Kirk from Star Trek. Oh, great I'm a choice. Big, I'm a big Trekkie. My friend and I actually wrote a philosophy book about the philosophy of Star Trek, and I had to watch all the old Trek to do that. It was a hardship, but I made it through for all of you. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, Captain Kirk was just um, there was something about that character, even when I was very young, that was like this was a person who was a daring leader who would take risks. And and I kind of felt like that. At, and he seemed like kind of an outsider at times when it came to the Federation and things like that. And I felt like that as a kid. And that's kind of, I kind of wanted to be that guy that even though I was kind of on the edge and maybe doing wacky things from time to time, I would still have the respect of the people around me. And uh, would, would you, would you speak like William Shatner? Would you over 
emphasize and slow <laughs> down and break up sentences so that they... <laughs> I probably did that at one point my yeah, my uncle I... was a major trekkie and he took me to a star trek convention in the tri cities in washington um and i walked in and i was probably six and i'm like there's like two mr Spocks and her <laughs> just walked by confusing. and i mean it's like I was like, oh my goodness, like, like, who are these people that are dressing up this way? And my uncle's like, just you wait. And I mean, man alive, it was it was actually amazing. People speaking in Klingon, life-size models of the Enterprise. And it, it was just, yes. um, and going to Star Trek conventions now is amazing because we'll go and we'll take our books that we wrote. We'll go to Star Trek conventions. We actually were going to come to London last year before they canceled the London Star Trek convention. Yes, yeah, it was massive. Which made, yeah. Oh, it made so many people so mad. Oh, it was so frustrating. Um, but anyway, so we, anyway, but you go to those things and you have these people that build these models and do these incredible things and these incredible analysis of all the different episodes and things like that. And it's astounding. It's a, it's amazing to be a part of a community like that, that is unified around this original story and philosophy that really, you know, the original only lasted for a few seasons. There really weren't a lot of episodes, relatively speaking, in today's two, you know, today's world. Mm, to that. Mm. So, yeah, that that would be my quick answer for that. I mean, there's there's probably others along the way that I would have I would have picked at various points, but Captain exactly. Kirk. Would be well, I, it's 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 a difficult one with Captain Kirk in the sense that one, you know, the the curtain's been lifted on on who William Shatner is to to work with, and 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 there aren't many of his co-workers who, who get on with him um over the years <laughs> let's let's be let's be honest about it you know uh whether it's george takei talking about it or all the fact that he fell out with with leonard nimoy um which at, at the end of their lives i mean they were close friends for a long time and then suddenly at the end it all imploded and then leonard passed away so um very very sad but uh for me it's in the similar sort of theme and and, and genre which is uh, be data wouldn't you no no, no well, <laughs> um, it, <laughs> I don't think I could do a Brent well, Spock. Baltus. That's be... a bit modern. Yeah, no, that's that's a different series. Uh, it would be Tom Baker as, oh, as doc, the fourth Doctor. Yeah. Um, oh, he... yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for me, you know, growing up, I mean, we had we had Captain Kirk reruns and, and the original Star Trek series, but he was my you know go to man every week, and still is. I mean, in many ways, he's a maverick. He's as a person. He says things which are totally unpalatable in this current world, uh, has done mm-hmm. things that are unpalatable in terms of, uh, you know, his level of drinking and carousing that he did as a, in, during his career, a uh, number of marriages he's had, all sorts of things. But I love that. He's still got that magnificent twinkle, that great voice. He's 87. Doctor. You know, sort of, yeah. oh, Leela. <laughs> you know. And then you know what he's saying when he's saying, come on, Leela, love. You know, he's actually thinking, you know, I'm going to... With you, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> he's got that twinkle, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know that that mischief, and I love that. But he hasn't changed a bit. So, who do you think I'd like to be? Ooh. Or would have when I was young. Penelope Pitstop. Not well, actually, yeah, I did quite like Penelope Pitstop, but Wonder Woman. All right, you Wonder, Wonder Woman. Woman. Yeah, I thought she was amazing. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, <laughs> actually, so. Yeah, and that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down because we could go down the new Wonder Woman movies and why the first, oh, 10 minutes or so of the most recent one could have just been cut. But um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you know, we could we could talk about the plot holes in that. Um, but anyway, yes. Um, but yes, actually, so, I mean, and that series was, 
I mean, think about how revolutionary it was at the time. That was a big deal. So mm. I could see that. I could yes, very much see that. Yes, she was an icon. That. I mean, you, yeah. she didn't have to wear much, much clothes, but she did a lot of good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was yeah. it Linda Evans? No, Lin- yes, Linda Evans, that's it. Yeah, yeah. 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 She Linda was amazing. Evans, yeah. And she yeah. did that spinny thing, didn't she, when she changed the into spinny the thing. <laughs> yeah. spinny thing. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, uh, Troy, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. For people who want to discover Plotter and, 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 and take a look at it, where do they go? Um, basically, start with our website, www.plotter.com. It's Plotter without an E. Um, and you can find us the same way on YouTube and on all the socials. We have a really active Facebook group. If you have questions, you can pop in there. You can tag me in that Facebook group, and I show up every now and then and answer questions when I'm not on deadline with a book like I was last week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that, those things happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we're all over the place. But start with plotter.com, um, and you can find out everything you need to know there and go from there. Fantastic. And we hope to bump into you at a convention. Yeah, next Star Trek. Near you all, near us. Oh, man. Yeah, um, I hope to be in London, if not later this year, next year. I have some uh, some good friends there, and I, I just am trying to somehow create some kind of a U.S. author tour over there or something. So that would wow. be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Candace Inferring, come up, come come by for a coffee yeah. as as ordered up through Plotter. Yes, Plotter, you betcha, yeah. coffee. <laughs> when, yeah, when Plotter works your K-cup machine, let me know. I'll be right there. So. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Thanks, guys. Well, he wasn't phased by the random question. No, not at all. In fact, a brilliant answer and a lovely discussion as well. Yes, it was. Yeah, it took was, me back. <laughs> it did. It did indeed. Yeah, no, fabulous. Great question too. Who have we got next, as our guest next week? So next week we're talking to a writer called Colleen Steed. Fantastic. And uh, Colleen, what do we know of, about Colleen before we speak to her? She's a writer. <laughs> she is indeed. A writer. Well, she's a writer of uh, a debut novel, Home, which is published by Bloomsbury and has uh, garnered quite a lot of, uh, well, very, very positive uh, feedback and reviews. So we look forward to speaking to her, this dystopian story that it is. And uh, yeah, always exciting to speak to someone new to us. I love that. I absolutely love talking to people who have approached us who we don't know anything about and who might be in a slightly different area of the of the publishing industry or, you know, with a yeah, different sure. publisher. Sure. I think, I think all of our listeners would agree that, you know, no matter who we speak to, we always get gems of information and it's just that we love those conversations. So we hope that's um, how you feel about it as listeners to our podcast. Uh, but we're very proud of, of what we do with it and uh, the people we meet through it. Absolutely. We are. Absolutely. Right. Now it's been, uh, it's been a busy old week. We always say that it's going to be another busy week next <laughs> week uh, with book launching for Brian, Brian yeah. Price. Book, launch, book launching dose. for Brian, Fatal Dose, the poison book. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, brilliant Never trust cover. that man to give you a chocolate. No, absolutely. Uh, so we'll uh, look forward to talking about more about that. And I learned how to play Smelly Cat on the guitar last week. <laughs> very nice. Yeah, uh, you're very few moments away from uh, from the <laughs> grindstone. Uh, and I've been in my studio most of this week. In fact, my you might hear I, I took a lozenge before I, I did the podcast because my voice is 
getting a little raw after three further chapters of the latest uh, audiobook project I've been commissioned to do. Uh, I'm back in the Roman Empire, and so my (laughs) body count uh, just went up by 15 in the last chapter, uh, actually, if not more. So I think some other people died as well. But anyway, 15 legionaries died um, at the hands of Gothic archers. But the problem I have with you working on these books is you, you come out humphy. Oh, well, I, look, I mean, you know, got people, um, all the characters I'm doing are fighting for their lives. Men, upon, you know, all that sort of stuff. And they're, you know, there's blood, gore, entrails, all sorts of things going but on. But I don't want blood, gore and entrails. I know you like softer stuff, but for the people who love historical sword and sandals fiction, the Legionary series by Gordon Doherty is fabulous. No, I don't mean that. I mean in my real life. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no. I mean, I do woman bring me food now and i say no get it yourself (laughs) yeah it was simpler times back (laughs) in the uh, fourth century ad uh anyway it's a pleasure to do and uh it's going to be a big challenge it's going to dominate my life for the next uh best part of two and a half months i think oh joy yeah um anyway amongst other things and of course all things hoback and we opened our submissions for certain types of uh, of books this week yeah so as this podcast podcast goes out they will have been open for just a few hours so from midnight um monday morning two weeks exactly right and what are those genres that we're looking to uh strengthen our portfolio so we're very specific um psychological fiction particularly domestic noir you know domestic setting yep um historic crime fiction yep we'd love some more of that because we haven't got enough we don't think no and we're looking for... And then cosy mysteries. Yeah. And um, when we say cosy, we really do mean cosy. Yeah. You know. Um, the opposite of what you've been recording, in other words. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's far from cosy, but they don't swear so much. Um, but, uh, yeah, think Father Brown and stuff like that um, for, for the cosy side of things, you know. Uh, everyone's John Teal and has manners. Uh, the other thing we wanted to mention is that very soon we'll be going to the theatre to see Robert Dawes in action. He launched, uh, of course, the fabulous Hobeck author, the, the original Hobeck author. Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob. Robert Dawes is back on stage. And uh, this week he was uh, launching his brilliant new one-man show written by William Humble. Uh, they've been working on it for nearly five years to get this uh, going. And it's called Woodhouse in Wonderland. And as you can imagine, Uncle Bob is a fabulous P.G. Woodhouse reflecting on all aspects of his life, um, and singing as well. And uh, a lot of sort of Cole Porter numbers and Gershwin and things like that involved. And the reviews so far from the Malvern Theatre where he started, and he's uh, coming to where he is this week, where we're seeing him in Shrewsbury the week after next, um, have been amazing. And, uh, yeah, it is a tour de force and a, a, a passion project for him. So check that out. It may well be at a theatre near you very very i've soon. actually had a couple of um our bloggers say but he's nowhere near me i can't go and see him he's too far away <laughs> true i mean he's not going to every theater in the country um but if but, it goes well maybe there'll be more well i think so i think that the plan is to take it worldwide as well for our worldwide listeners there's been a lot of uh, traffic to robert's website asking if he's coming to america well let's hope he takes his laptop with him yeah yeah, yeah, we're still looking for book four. So anyway, we'll look, we'll look forward to uh, seeing Bob in Shrewsbury very soon. But anyway, that uh, bat wraps it up. Actually, I heard his voice on a Guide Dogs for the Blind um, advert. Just Did this, you? Yeah, this afternoon I was watching the darts. <laughs> <laughs> and it was definitely Uncle Bob. Please. 
give generously. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> anyway, wonderful. Um, and uh, that's it for it this week. And we'll look forward to speaking to you on the Hobcast next week. So, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. We wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.